Good morning, everyone. My name is Stuart Mazell. I'm the lead pastor here. And for the rest of you, we're going to continue in our series on values. Last week, we took a look at uh, the fact that everybody has values. Everybody values something more than something else. And there's a call for us to align our values to what Jesus calls us to have as values. Today, we're going to be looking at a really, really challenging passage. So I I just want to warn you ahead of time. There's some stark, startling language that Jesus uses. And if you are offended by it in some way, I can understand why. And even if you're not offended by it, well, if you're not offended by it, I kind of feel like you're probably not paying attention. Because Jesus says something really sharp here. We're looking at Luke. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And this is what Jesus says. Now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish? Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Jesus, these are hard words. And you know my desire right now is I I don't want to say things to guilt anyone into anything. I really long for all of us to see you as you are, to see something of your glory, to see something of how good you are, to see what you're really valued as in eternity, in the universe, as the center of it all. And so today, Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts, not that we would just feel guilty and leave, 
but that we would have real repentance that leads to life, that we would have real love for our God, our Lord, our Savior, that we would have real faith, that we would have real obedience, that we would truly believe and be your disciples, Jesus. Those who truly follow you because you have loved us so well and so powerfully. Cause all of that to happen in our lives, whether we are here today and not a believer or those of us who have believed for a long time and yet find ourselves longing for the things of this world more than you, would you help us, Holy Spirit, to believe, to trust, and to hear your word and put it into practice. Again, for your glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for our good and even for the good of the people around us, uh, we pray. Amen. All right, so tough words, right? And we'll get to them in just a moment. But I do want to ask this question. Since we're talking about values, what do we value? What, what do we, as a society, value? You know, as Americans, it's very clear that we value freedom. It, it's written into every document we have. As Americans, we most likely value what's been dubbed the American dream, which is the upward mobility of oneself and for one's children. We all want a better life, having enough money, having enough possessions that we can live the good life. In fact, it's written right there in our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are our values as a nation. We're also most likely, as Americans, to value self-reliance and individuality, if I can do it myself, I'm going to. If I can make my own way, I will. I think it's pretty obvious, at least in the last decade or so, that it's, we value comfort. We value ease. We value our time. We don't want our time wasted. I think it's safe to say that, at, since we live here in the South, that most of us value Family. Family is something that, you know, you make sure that you're there for Sunday dinner or at least for Thanksgiving and Christmas, if nothing else. Family is a value. All of those things are values that we have as a society. And this passage rubs up against all of it. Did you see that? And that's part of what we want to see today. That's part of what we talk about today is that Jesus disrupts our value systems. Jesus disrupts our value systems. We all think that we have certain values and we say, well, Jesus must say that's a good value and that's a good value and that's a good value. And he probably does in many ways. But there are times when Jesus says, no, you're putting too much value on this, that, or the other. 
putting too much value on freedom, too much value on equality, too much value on comfort and ease, and yes, even too much value on family. Let's take a look at this. I'm going to go uh, not in order here, but in verse 33, notice how what Jesus says here. He says, therefore, any of you, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus disrupts the American dream. Verse 27. Whoever does not hear, <laughs> whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, the imagery of bearing one's cross is not about wearing a necklace with a cross on it. Bearing one's cross meant it was a death sentence. It was carrying your cross to your death. And so bearing one's cross, according to Jesus, is about dying. It's about dying to oneself. Well, there Jesus disrupts the comforts of the, the values of comfort and ease. Jesus disrupts the values of self-reliance and individuality because we're taking up our cross to follow him. Jesus disrupts the value of even holding on to life itself. You feeling uncomfortable? And then in verse 26, probably one of the strongest, harshest, strangest to our ears words that Jesus ever said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, with these words, even disrupts the value that we place on family. And this last one is the one that's most disturbing, isn't it? Because, I mean, I think if you know anything about Jesus, you're probably okay with him saying, hey, you shouldn't be a crass materialist. You shouldn't just be chasing after money and stuff because you can't take it with you, right? And so we expect Jesus to say that. We may expect Jesus to say, hey, comfort and ease, they're, they're good, but they're not the most important. We may even expect Jesus to say freedom has to have its limits. But how can Jesus disrupt our family values? How can Jesus call us to hate our family? What is going on in this passage? Are you asking that? I know the first time I read this, I did. Like, this doesn't make sense to me, Jesus. So what's going on here? How do we understand this? First of all, unless we want to claim that Jesus is inconsistent, which I do not believe he was or is, then he can't be calling us to hate our families literally. Okay? Let's just get that right off the bat. Jesus is not calling us to hate, despise our families in a literal sense. I don't want any of you going home to your family today and saying, I hate all of you. Please don't do that. 
Because after all, Jesus is the one who in Matthew 5, 17, and I'm going to run through these verses pretty quickly. If you would like to have an, uh, um, a list of them later, you can feel free to email me or text me. Uh, Matthew 5, 17, he's, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill, fulfill them. Jesus is saying, I'm not here to take away what God has said before. I'm not here to take away the truth of what the law says. I am here to fulfill that law. So he can't be contradicting something that's had happened before. Now, when Jesus was talking to the scribes and Pharisees, about how they were breaking God's law by the way they treated their parents in Matthew 15, 4. He says, God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And so Jesus is saying, look, this law about honoring father and mother is still important. So you can't say Jesus on one side of your lips is saying honor your father and mother, and on another side he's saying, well, you need to hate them. See what I'm saying? In uh, Luke 10, 27, the same Jesus, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Well, guess what? The people who live in your house are your neighbors. And you're to love them, even when they're annoying, even when they get on your nerves. Do not use this passage in Luke to go to your family and say, Well, you're annoying, so Jesus told me I need to hate you, so I hate you. Don't do that. That's not what's going on here. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And who are we to love? One another. And your family is part of the one another. And then in Luke 6, 27 through 28, for those of you who might be thinking, yeah, but I don't get along with my parents, so I'm okay with hating them. I don't get along with my brothers and sisters, so I'm okay with hating them. They're more like my enemies than they are my family. Well, Jesus has something to say about that too. Luke 6, 27 and 28, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So no matter what Jesus is doing in this passage where he says you need to hate your family, he cannot literally be saying hate your family. There's something else going on. I hope everybody can understand that from what we just saw. And if you're wondering, well, what is that something? Here it is. Jesus calls us to value him above everything else. That's the point that Jesus is making in this passage. Jesus calls us to value him above everything else. Let's take a look just at verse 26 for a moment. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So we've already seen that there's, no, there's not a contradiction here. So we must understand Jesus' words in a different way. There are some Bible students who say that what Jesus is doing is he's using hyperbole. Now, I'm not trying to make this into an English class, but those of you who don't know what hyperbole, it's exaggerated language to make a point. Right? Like when your teenager says, oh, that took forever. 
It didn't literally take forever. It's exaggerated language. It's hyperbole that makes the point that it seemed like it took a really long time, right? And Jesus himself is a master of hyperbole. In fact, in a passage in Matthew chapter 5, he says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now the fact that most of you still have your right eye and your right hand, I'm assuming that you don't take this literally, but that you are understanding it for what Jesus is meaning. Be serious about fighting sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Be serious about it. Don't play around with it. Don't get into bed with your sin. Don't cuddle up to it. Sin is serious business, so you need to be serious in dealing with it. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. But he's using hyperbole to make the point. And I would argue that in verse 26 of Luke, he's doing the same thing. He's using hyperbole, exaggerated language to make a point. And the point is, honor me, value me more than anything else. Now, there is another school of thought, which is very similar, but I do want to say this just in case I'm wrong about the hyperbole. I think it's hyperbole. But there are some people who say that when Jesus says hate, he actually means love less. And they get that from the fact that there's a passage in Genesis. Right? And in Genesis chapter 29, here's some background. Jacob loves this woman named Rachel. And Rachel is the daughter of Laban. But Laban also has another daughter named Leah. And Jacob agrees to work for Laban for seven years in order to marry Rachel. But at the last minute, there's a little switcheroo, and Jacob gets tricked, and he marries Leah instead. And he's like, hey, I thought I was going to marry Rachel. And Laban says, well, we don't do it that way here. You've got to marry the oldest first, and then you get to marry the second one. And so he works for another seven years, and he has two wives. And here's what Genesis 29, 30 through 31, that's the context. Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Some people say that the word hated there isn't literally that he hated Leah. I mean, after all, he did marry her and he did have children with her but that he loved her less than he loved Rachel. And that's the the meaning of the word hated there. But whichever way it goes, whether it's hyperbole or it's love less, it's obvious that what Jesus is saying here is that we are to value him more than anything else, more than our stuff, more than our family, even more than our own lives. Jesus isn't calling us to be some moody, emo teenager saying, I hate my life. That's not what this is about. No, he's saying, love me more than you love your own life. Jesus isn't calling all of us to be perpetually penniless. He's saying, love me 
more than you love your stuff, more than you love money. And Jesus isn't calling us actually to hate our family. He's saying, love me more than you love your daughters, your sons, your husband, your wife, your mother, your father, your brothers or sisters. Let me tell you my first reaction to this. Other than going, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? Another reaction was, well, that can't be right. Aren't we supposed to love everybody the same? You know, my children, when, and they're going to hate me for saying this, but when, I was, when they were younger, they used to do this thing to me all the time where they would come up and say, hey, Dad, who's your favorite? It's me, isn't it? You don't have to tell the rest of them. I know. And I would say, no, I love all of you equally. And they're going, no, you don't. No, you don't. You've got to love one of us more than the other. You've got to. That's just the way it works. Right? And, and, and I find myself saying, well, yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I do believe I love all three of you equally but I don't love everybody on the face of the earth equally, right? I mean, I give gifts to my children, but that guy at Walmart that I always see, but I, don't, I can't remember his name, but I see him every time I go in there, I don't give him gifts on his birthday. I don't even know when his birthday is. So I don't love him the same way that I love my children, right? So there is loving certain people more than you love others. And what Jesus is saying is you've got to love him more than anybody else. He's first in the pecking order. He's at the top of the totem pole. He is the most important one. My third thought of hearing this is, wow, that sounds like a narcissist. That sounds like some kind of egotistical egomaniac. I mean, that sounds like somebody who is really into himself, right? And in our culture, that's probably how it's heard. If anybody says, hey, look, if you don't hate everybody in comparison to loving me, there's no need of even signing up. You're not worthy of me. I mean, we're going to look at that person and say, that's a toxic relationship. You need to get out of that. That's the way our culture is right now, today. And there's some sense in that. But the only reason that Jesus can say this is because he knows something that we don't know. He knows something we don't know. Let me put it to you this way. Imagine that you wanted to climb Mount Everest. Has anybody ever actually climbed Mount Everest here? I'd be really excited if somebody did. I don't see any hands. All right, so Mount Everest is one of the high, it is the highest mountain in the world, all right? And it is very difficult to get to the top. So difficult, in fact, because there are things like freezing to death or not having enough oxygen and you just pass out and die, okay? And, and then there's also, you could slip and fall. And falling down the tallest mountain probably would not be a good thing for you. So most people who go up 
Mount Everest. Even some very, very experienced climbers do so by means of a Sharpa. Someone who knows how to get to the top. No one who, someone who knows what it takes to get to the top. And they put their lives in that person's hands. And they say, okay, take me to the top. Show me the ropes. Show me what it looks like to get to the top. I think rather than thinking of Jesus as some crazy egomaniac, we need to think of Jesus as saying, I know what it takes. I know what it takes to be my disciple. It's not easy. And if you're coming in thinking, oh, this is going to be a breeze, it's going to be a bed of roses, it's just going to be, you know, everybody's going to be happy and clapping and singing kumbaya all the time, it's just going to be wonderful, then you're, you're misled. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. So you need to make sure you understand what it's like. Jesus isn't the used car salesman who's trying to make sure he gets that car off the lot and tell you whatever you want to hear. He's telling you the truth. Following him is hard. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. In fact, he says it so strongly, and this is what I wrestled with the most this week, as I was reading this passage and meditating on it and thinking about it and praying about it, did you notice that three times Jesus says, cannot? Did you notice that? Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. At this point, I expect most of us are saying, well, I guess I'm not Jesus' disciple then. Because who can say that we've done all those things? Before we get further, I do want to at least say one thing about Jesus. He's calling us to value him more than anything else. And so we've got to get this into our system. Are you ready for it? Folks, valuing Jesus above everything is worth it. Valuing Jesus above everything is worth it. We tend to think it's not worth it because, hey, I might lose something. But whatever you lose, you will gain more in following Jesus and being his disciple and knowing him. You will get what is even immensely, eternally better in Jesus than what you can get in this life. And that's what we need to, we need to get our minds wrapped around that. 
I love this passage in Mark 10 that I think is somewhat of a parallel passage with this where Jesus is saying some strong words and then Peter says, well, Jesus, see, we have left everything and we followed you. We literally have dropped everything to follow you. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive, listen, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. <laughs> he had to throw that in. And in the age to come, eternal life. What Jesus is saying is, look, whatever you give up, you're going to gain it back in some way. You may give up on family because they say you can't follow Jesus. And many of our Muslim brothers and sisters have done just that. When they say Jesus is Lord, their family says, well, then you're no son of mine. You're no daughter of mine. They literally have given up on their family, but they've gained a new family. The family that we call the church. They've gained a heavenly father. They've gained a brother who sticks closer to them than anybody else can in Jesus. And they have gained other brothers and sisters all around the world. But not only is that true, but think about what we have to come. Jesus says there's eternal life. We tend to think, okay, that's life that never ends. And I know I've talked to some of you, and you said, I don't know if I like the idea of eternal life. It sounds boring. It sounds like, well, if life lasts forever, it seems like that would be exhausting at some point. But here's what we're missing. When we use the word eternal life, we're thinking only in terms of time. When Jesus uses the word eternal life, he's not just talking about time, he's talking about quality. A life that is so full, so joyful, so enjoyable, so wonderful, so beautiful, so incredible that every moment is better than the last for all eternity. Jonathan Edwards used to have this phrase, he did have this phrase, where he said it was an ever-expanding joy. A joy that never came to an end and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Look, I don't know what that's like, but I want that. And I want that more than I want my stuff. I want that more than I want everybody to like me. I want that more than anything this life can give me. What about you? Do we value Jesus above everything else? He's worth it. He's God in the flesh. Who else would stoop that low for us? 
He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet He loves us and wants us to be a part of His family. What world leader wants you to be a part of their family? All things were created through Him and for Him, and yet He wants to share His glory with us, as we read in our Confession of Hope today. And I'll tell you, this is the one that gets me every time. Jesus is the one who knows me inside and out. He knows all my secret thoughts. He knows all my hidden deeds. He knows all those shameful things in my life. And He still says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother. I still love you. Even despite all of that mess that you bring into the relationship, I love you. And I proved that by dying for you. Do you hear how wonderful that is? Who else on earth is willing to do that for you? I mean, I think my mom is willing to die for me. But if I told mom all the things that I did when I was a teenager, I don't know. But that's what Jesus is like. He knows it all and He still loves us and He still wants to give us everything. Why would we settle for less than what Jesus has for us? The only reason I can say is because we don't value Jesus. We don't see the value of Jesus. Jesus is worth more than anything. So no wonder we should follow Him. And value him above everything. So if you're wondering, okay, Stuart, well, what's my action point? What am I going to do? You're going to tell me love Jesus more? Because <laughs> I can't really make that happen. No. No, I'm actually not. Your action point is Jesus' action point. The action point that Jesus gives in the passage. Your action point is count the cost. Count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. Count it. Sit down and write out a list of all the things that you have to give up and all the things that you have in Christ. And I think you'll find that in that list, the things that you have in Christ will outweigh whatever you have in this life to give up. Here's how Jesus says it. Verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 31. Or what king going out to an encounter, to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Jesus is saying, am I really worth it? And if you don't think so, keep looking at him until you see. But I think Jesus is putting something else in our mind. At least I think it is. And I know this sermon is going a little bit long, but that's okay, because I want you to hear this part. 
Go, go back to the, that verse before, the, um, starting in verse 28. Look carefully at what Jesus is saying. Which one of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Okay, we got that. Whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What's Jesus saying? There's a guy who wants to build a tower, and he doesn't have enough to get there. Verse 31. Pay close attention to what Jesus is saying. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Are you really willing to put all the men online, 10,000 men against 20,000 men? Looks like that's a losing battle. In both those examples, Jesus does not give us someone who sits down, counts the cost, and comes up and says, I got it. In both those examples, they fall short. Both of them. And I think that what Jesus is driving us to is very similar to what he's driving at when in Mark 10, the same passage I referred to earlier, he says... And this is, he's talking to his disciples. He says, the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is not easy. It is difficult. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And rightly, rightly, the disciples say in verse 26, they're exceedingly astonished. And they say, well, then who can be saved? If that's the case, if it's that hard, if it's easier for someone who has money to, um, to get into heaven than for a, a, a camel to go through an eye of a needle, if that's really what it's like, who can be saved? And you know what Jesus says? I love this. I love what he says here. He says in verse 27, with man it's impossible. You can't do it. With man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. That's what Jesus is driving us to. You can't do it. I can't do it. No one we know can do it. We need to count the cost, yes. But when we count the cost and see how much Jesus is giving us in himself, and then we realize, I can't make it, we go back to him and say, Jesus, give me what I need to make it to the top. Jesus, give me what I need to make it as your disciple. Jesus, give me what I need to be able to be what you call me to be. Because I can't do it. And you know what Jesus, how Jesus answers that prayer? I am the vine. You are the branches. You abide in me. You're going to bear much fruit. You're going to prove to be my disciple. So keep coming to me. Keep looking at me. Don't take your eyes off me. Don't look at the mountain around you. Don't look at the cold weather. Don't look at how you're breathing heavily. Look at me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. And if you do that, 
you'll be my disciple because I'll make it happen. Praise Jesus. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's our Savior. So by the power of the Spirit, let's value Jesus above all because he's worth it. And he'll give us what we need to be able to do that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we admit we can't do it on our own. We can't make it. We can't get to the top of the mountain. We can't get to heaven. We can't get to a new heaven and a new earth on our own. We need you. We need you to forgive us of our sins. We need you to give us new life. We need you to give us a new creation in our hearts. We need you to empower us to be able to walk faithfully with you. We need you. And we also need you to open our eyes that we will see that you really are that valuable. That whatever we think we're giving up in this life, it is nothing compared to what you have for us. Jesus, by your Spirit, open our eyes and let us see that. And let this church be a church that is characterized by people who love you more. And we pray this, Jesus, for your glory for our good, and for the good of others around us. Amen.